0: going to start in John. This is a somewhat familiar story of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman by the roadside well. I just want to pick it up at verse 5 of John chapter 4. It says, so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman, therefore, said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, "'Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well, and drank of it himself, and his sons, and his cattle?' Jesus answered and said to her, "'Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst.'"
1: But the water that I shall
0: give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said, You have well said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We'll just stop right there in that story. There are several relevant points in this passage I want to touch on before we go to Romans. This woman was a Samaritan, and her religion was related to Judaism. It was a lot like it, actually, but it branched off years and years before during the time of the divided kingdom. You'll remember that after King Solomon the kingdom of Israel Israel was split into two kingdoms, and the southern part, which was mainly uh, the tribe of Judah, where Jerusalem was, was its own kingdom, and the northern tribes had their own kingdom, which they called the nation of Israel. So they had Israel and Judah. Well, the Samaritans were from that northern part, and what happened was in 722 BC, the Assyrians came along and swiped away and destroyed the northern kingdom out of existence. And took a lot of the people there off into captivity. And many scholars believe they also they brought other people, they would move people around just to get them all disoriented and help keep their control over areas. So they'd bring in strangers into areas and settle them there. And whether they did that here in Israel, we're not totally sure. But the remnants of the people that lived there that still survived there became the Samaritans. One of the things that happened before the Assyrians came while the kingdom was divided, was that the northern kings of Israel didn't want people to worship in Jerusalem. So they set up Alternate worship sites, if you will, where people could do sacrifices and not go to their enemies, political enemies down below in Jerusalem. And so, um, what she's talking about, this mountain, Mount Gerizim, is near one of those sites where they did that to keep the kingdom divided. So, the Samaritans kind of developed their own system. But they worshiped the Lord, the God of the Bible. They recognized the books of Moses as scripture. They were waiting for a Messiah. They practiced circumcision. They ate kosher food according to the laws of Moses. They kept the Sabbath according to the laws of Moses. But they had this other view, this other tradition, this other spiritual life based around Mount Gerizim and not Jerusalem. And what's interesting about this woman's discussion with Jesus is that he's so straight with her. Um, not only about her personal life, he's reaching out to her. He's, you know, He wants a drink of water, but he's just using that as an opportunity to get her to think about eternal things he's reaching out to her for for her salvation but when she asserts that her people worship at mount gerizim this mountain as she calls it he tells her that her people are wrong you're not supposed to do that anymore that's considered a politically incorrect no-no verse 22 you worship that which you do not know we worship that which we know for salvation is from the jews Here's another example of Jesus just conflicting with modern thinking. Shouldn't he affirm her in her faith tradition? Isn't that what he should do as a polite person? That's what we're always told. Isn't he being religio-centric here, thinking that the Jewish religion is more true than the Samaritan religion? Possibly he could even be racist here, asserting that Jewish people have a superior standing with God versus these Samaritan people. How can he declare her religion ignorant of all things, to actually say that a person is ignorant and worshiping in ignorance? And how can he be such an insensitive, closed-minded fellow as to tell her that her mountain is the wrong mountain and his mountain is the right mountain? That's just... oh. Well, I'll tell you how he can do it. He's speaking truth. That forbidden thing in the modern world. He's telling her the truth. And as much as Jesus loved her, he would not lie to her and he would not pretend to her. Her only hope was in the truth just as our only hope is in the truth. So even though he's about to take her beyond both Jerusalem and Gerizim because he tells her that really and neither of those places is where it's gonna be from now on, now that he's here, he's still not gonna let it go that salvation is from the Jews. He asserts that truth. Why do you think that mattered so much? Well, he's trying to reach her, offering her eternal life in him. Jesus graciously let this woman in on the fact that she was speaking to the Messiah. He didn't do that all the time. He's saying, you are talking to the Messiah. That's where he's bringing her around to. Here was her chance. But what if she decided to wait for the Samaritan Messiah? She would have missed her chance so he's not going to let her be in error because that would mean she couldn't find eternal life in him. You know, ethnic and religious tradition, this is what we are, this is who we are, this is what we do because we belong to this group of people. That idea has kept more people from God than probably anything else because people do not honor truth. It's something else always comes first. Our heritage, our background, our family, our racial group, or whatever the thing is. God expects people to come to him on his terms, not our terms. And he expects us to be ready to cast aside whatever stands in the way. So Jesus tells her the truth. Now, let's go on to his wonderful statement there again in verse 21. Look back at verse 21 again. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is, he says. Now is the time when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's great stuff. The time has come, he says, that goes beyond mountains. And what has to be suggested when Jesus says, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father? It's beyond that now. We must, he's got to be describing a faith that will completely do away with the old order of things. And when God moves and changes things, people have to be ready to move with him. Because when you talk about the mountain, Jerusalem, or her mountain even, there's tons and tons of religious activity going on in those places and there had been for centuries and he's saying you know what all of that is being swept aside we're moving beyond that the whole process and activity of temple worship of blood sacrifice the whole priestly system in its place will be verse 23 true worshipers who worship God in spirit and in truth That's going to take over for all of that. After all, God is spirit, he says. So certainly the worship he really wants from men is spiritual worship, the worship of heart and the worship of mind and the worship of soul. Genuine affection. What one man has called the sacrifice of a humble, contrite, grateful, and adoring spirit. That's what God wants. It's us he wants, not a lot of ceremony stuff. And you know, that's not new. The Old Testament, which contains all this ceremony and ritual, which are all signs and pictures of the coming sacrifice of Christ for sin. All those things served a very important purpose. Even under all that regulation, spirit and truth are the things that really mattered. When King Saul tried to sacrifice his way into God's favor, do you remember, after being very disobedient? Well, not very disobedient, he would say. Remember, he was supposed to go and destroy a very wicked people and bring nothing back from them, utterly annihilate them. And, well, yeah, but you know, some of their stuff was pretty nice, so we brought some of it back. But we brought it to offer God, you understand. Not for ourselves, of course. Well, weren't you told to not bring anything back? Well, yeah, but you know, we're going to offer this to God, and the whole disobedience thing. And Samuel the prophet, to his face, he tells him, he says, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Good question. Does God delight more in rituals and sacrifices than in obedience? Behold, he says, it is better to obey than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed than the fat of rams for rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as the is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the lord he has rejected you from being king i mean powerful stuff to obey is better than sacrifice it's always been that way saul's heart was not with god it was with his own political standing and his own interests and when the prophet micah counted out what really mattered in the faith of israel famous passage most of you probably heard it micah 6 6 he says with what shall i come to the lord and bow myself before god on high shall i come to him with burnt offerings with yearling calves does the lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil shall i present my firstborn for my rebellious acts the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul and if you look at the whole mosaic system you might say yeah but Micah says, He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Spirit and truth. So that's Old Testament as well. Well, what does all this have to do with the book of Romans? Well, quite a bit. You might want to turn over to the Romans chapter 4 now. When Jesus spoke of the time now present when men must worship in spirit and truth, he was describing the end of the old system. Not that anything was wrong with it, with the law and all of those ceremonies and all the sacrificial duties that were commanded, but something much greater had arrived. That's the whole point. And when you reach your destination, you can set aside the map. Right? Or as Jesus said in another place, men do not put new wine into old wineskins because they burst and you don't put a new patch on old material because it will pull the whole thing apart. The coming of Jesus into the world changed everything. Even the law. Not because the law was worthless, but because he fulfilled it. He lived it. He answered all of its signs, all the things it was pointing to, he fulfilled. He paid the full price as the Lamb of God, as a substitute on our behalf. He was the sacrifice of the Old Testament system. So all of that was left behind, not on this mountain or that mountain. But God is looking for hearts. And as Paul had been pointing out in Romans, the law law has a big problem because it can't save anybody. Why can't the law save you? Because you can't keep it. I can't keep it. You can't keep it. Nobody you know can keep it. The virtue of the law is that it condemns us. It reveals our condition to us that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's its only real value. Now, the purpose of the book of Romans is to explain to us how a man can be right with God. Paul wrote that book to say how a man or a woman can be right with God. This is how you do it. More accurately, how a sinful man can be right with God but that's the condition we're all in and because unrighteousness and ungodliness call down the wrath of God on sinners target sinners Romans chapter 1 verse 18 we are in need of salvation we need to be rescued from what? from the wrath of God on sinners so Romans is about salvation deliverance from the wrath of God and that salvation is accomplished on principles of righteousness you know people don't talk about this like they should because I used to talk about it all the time in preaching. Everything that has to do with salvation is based on righteousness. You can't discuss salvation without discussing righteousness because righteousness is essential for a human being to be rightly related to God. You can't be right with God without righteousness. Can't be. So all of salvation is, is built on the principle of righteousness. Salvation is always based on righteousness. Always. So a man can be right with God only on the basis of righteousness. Now then, here's the big problem. The problem is that no one, no one you know, no one I know, is righteous. That's the problem. Nobody you know or I know is righteous in his or her life and conduct. So if the principles of salvation are based on righteousness and we are not righteous, we have this dilemma. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? When we were there in chapter 3. What does that mean? Why all these verses and words and chapters? Because if that's true, righteousness is needed to be with God and we don't have any, then that's it. We're doomed. So why go on and on with all these other chapters? Well, these words and verses and chapters are there because there's good news. There's a righteousness, we're still dealing with righteousness, but it's a righteousness that is available outside of us. And that righteousness that is outside of us, God has arranged so that it can be counted as ours. And that's what the whole rest of the book of Romans is about. The righteousness of God himself given to us. Chapter 3, verse 21. He says, But now apart from the law, having nothing to do with the law, The righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24. Being justified, made right, as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. God provides righteousness as a gift of His grace through the redemption. Redemption means paid price which is in Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the gospel. That's the wonderful good news. So, in a sense, there are two paths to reach God. Both the paths are based on one principle, and the principle is righteousness. So, the one path is, you can have your own righteousness that meets God's standard. That is the path I choose not to take because I've sinned too much. Or, you can go down the path where God's righteousness is provided to you in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're like me, and you're a sinner, you have to eliminate the first path. Don't try to go down the first path. Forget it. Wash it out. Forget it. Put a sign over it. No, go here. Don't go. No. Uh. Uh. Play the second course, okay? Because that second path is the only way, the outside righteousness that God provides. That only leaves the second path, being rescued by God's grace in Christ's redemption. And how is God's righteousness received? How do we get that? By faith. Again, Romans 3.21. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. This way, there is no room for human boasting in religion. Verse 27. Where then is boasting It is excluded by what kind of law? Of works? No by a law of faith for we maintain verse 28 Romans three twenty-eight. we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law now that is one of the most important sentences in the whole Bible verse 28 of chapter 3 and if you ever get lost from that truth you are lost religiously this is the key and it's so easy to lose it. We saw last week that Paul went back to the beginning of the Jewish people to show that from the first, righteousness was applied to an individual's account based on faith and not good works. That's chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather according to the flesh is found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And now he quotes... Genesis fifteen six and verse three. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned or accounted or put to his account righteousness. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. So my friends, this is the very essence of biblical Christianity. Justification by faith alone, apart from works, by God's grace. That's it. It's a doctrine that thousands upon thousands of people have literally bled and died for been burned at the stake for, horribly tormented for, lost their jobs for, their incomes for, their homes for, their families for. It is the one great truth that Satan hates most in the world and rages against and tries to twist and pervert through religion. It's what religion tries to crush and suppress and deny. It's everything antithetical to human pride and self-righteousness, God's way. That's why he hates himself. Because when you understand salvation by grace through faith alone, only God can be glorified in religion or piety or whatever you want to call it. Only God. And that's the way it's supposed to be. And Satan hates that. He wants you to have confidence in yourself. He wants you to believe that you're a good person, that you're going to make it on your own, that you God might be there as sort of a helper, but you can have the glory with him. Because that's what he wanted. But the truth glorifies God, exposes man, and therefore is hated. So the faithful person fights for this truth and stands up for it because it's the only way wicked men can be right with God and all kinds of things are thrown up against it especially in religious circles even in Christian religious circles it can't be just faith people will say there must be something we have to do some act or some ceremony or some duty and Paul would say no 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 it's apart from all that stuff If it is by works, it can't be by faith. It is works or faith. It can't be both. But everybody wants to say it's both. Now, the Jews had one really important ceremony, and in this part of Romans, he's really writing to Jewish people mainly. But that was circumcision. Every male Jew had been circumcised when he was eight days old, unless something really weird happened in his life. But I mean, it was just so right. And it was biblical. It was something God commanded. But what had come about was an attitude that the act itself made you merit God's favor. That by doing that, some kind of obedient thing, that God rewarded you in some way for that. And Paul is saying, that's not it. There was no righteousness without circumcision. That's what the Jew would say. That's a part of you displaying your own righteousness. Well, Paul would say, really? And look at verse nine. Is this blessing then? He's talking about the blessing of being forgiven, receiving righteousness apart from works. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. That's what Genesis fifteen six says. That Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So verse ten. How then was it reckoned while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? This is a great question. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Paul's whole argument using the very words of Genesis 15-6 which Moses wrote is that Abraham was counted as righteous because he believed. His faith brought to him by God's grace a righteousness that he did not possess himself. No works. So what about circumcision, the Jew would say. And Paul would say, yes, what about it? When did that come into his life? It was not even in view in Genesis chapter 15 when Abraham was justified by faith. You know, you can turn back there if you want to, but Genesis 15, a little chronology. Genesis 15 is where we find this theological explanation that righteousness was put to Abraham's account, was reckoned to him because of his faith. We're also told in that same context that he was childless. You say, well, who cares? Well, it's real important for the whole chronology. Genesis 15, 2. Abram said, Lord, what wilt thou give me since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abraham said, since thou hast given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. Then, behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body he shall be your heir. And he took him outside, and God said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said, So shall your descendants be. And then it says, And he believed God, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So the whole context of that great theological sentence in Genesis 15.6 is his childless condition. So there it is. Then immediately you have the Abrahamic covenant ratified by God in verses 8 through 21. In fact, it's really interesting, we won't get into it this morning, but only it's a one-directional covenant. It's not a mutual covenant. It's God to Abraham alone. It's unconditional. Abraham didn't do anything. He just laid there and watched it happen. God did all the covenant-making. God makes him this unconditional promise that the covenant will be fulfilled. That is the promise. God's promise. Abraham is completely passive. So where does circumcision come in? Chapter 17. Chapter 17 begins with the words, Now when Abraham was 99 years old, that's pretty old. When he was 99 years old. That's a helpful time marker. In chapter 17, verse 9 through 14, we have the commandment regarding circumcision then. So that follows the statement where it says Abraham was 99 years old. So circumcision was given to Abraham when he was 99 years old. Now, back up to Genesis 16, 16. Before that. How old was Abram when his son Ishmael was born by his concubine Hagar? 86, it says. The very last verse of chapter 16. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Then right after that it says, Now when Abraham was 99 years old, and that's when circumcision came. So, Ishmael in chapter 17 is at least 13 years old. So at least 13 or 14 years have gone by, which means Abraham was justified by faith at least 13 or 14 years before circumcision was ever even mentioned or brought up by God at all. Say, so what? Well, that's everything. Because in Romans chapter 4, Paul is telling us why God put such a big time distance between Abraham being declared righteous by God, receiving righteousness outside of himself, and circumcision. Why did God let so much time go between there? So they would never be confused. That's got to be the reason. The reason is so that we would not confuse the outward sign with an inward reality. Look back at Romans 4, verse 11. It says, and he, being Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them. So Abraham's fatherhood was to extend far beyond his physical descendants. Yeah, he was going to have all these physical descendants, all these great nations coming forth from him nations through uh, his son Ishmael and obviously the chosen people through his son Isaac. But the Gentiles too, who believe, who just share his faith, they're his descendants too. They can receive salvation too and they can call him father too as the father of their faith. That's why we can go to Bible club on Wednesday afternoons and sing Father Abraham and do those strange hand motions because, because he is our father too by faith. Well, why circumcision then? Well Paul uses two words in verse 11. He says it was a sign and a seal. A sign points to something, right? What do you use signs for? To point to something. Big dog in backyard, turn off over here. You know, signs tell you information about something. Circumcision is a sign, so it signifies something. And my assumption is and yeah, you know, it signifies the cutting away and the removal of guilt and the pollution of sin. It symbolizes justification and the promise of salvation. It says God can interrupt that passage of sin from father to son to son to son, and all of humanity being condemned and Adam's sin and all of us in our fallen condition. God can intervene in that and save people with saving righteousness. So it's a sign ceremonies are signs they point to greater realities but never mistake the sign for the reality never make that confusion there are Old Testament signs and there are New Testament signs Old Testament signs are bloody circumcision is bloody sacrifices are enormously bloody New Testament signs are not bloody Why do you think the difference? Well, the Old Testament sign is pointing us to what? The blood of Christ. The blood of Christ has solved our problem. So blood doesn't need to be shed anymore. The New Testament signs are not bloody. They are baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? Like circumcision, baptism is a one-time thing. It's a symbol of having your sin washed away. Like sacrifices, the Lord's table is an ongoing, enacted thing. It's regular. Do it all the time. But it's unbloody. I mean, the wine represents blood, but it represents the blood of the one who satisfied the demands of justice, who fulfilled the law, which is why it's not blood, it's wine. It's a joyous thing, not a horrible thing. It represents the fellowship and a meal that we can have with God because of the death of Christ. So his all-sufficient sacrifice makes all the other sacrifices unnecessary. But the signs are not the thing itself. They're only pointers. Here's another sign from the Old Testament, the rainbow. I won't get into the scientific explanation for why a rainbow showed up after the flood, but it's interesting stuff. But the rainbow was put into the sky, the Bible says, so that we would know that God would never flood the world again and he hasn't he's kept his word and uh, it's a sign what does it point to it points to a promise that he made it signifies that God will never flood the world again it reminds us of a promise the idea of a seal now we talk about a sign and a seal the seal is an authentic guarantor it authenticates or guarantees the trustworthiness of a promise So the rainbow sort of has that effect too. Every time you see it, you can say, there's this God's seal that he'll never flood the whole world again. We don't have to worry about that. You might have to worry about it if you live in the wash, just on a little local level, but that's never going to flood the world again. Right? God has put the rainbow in the sky, but God commanded in Genesis 17 that circumcision be preserved forever among Abraham's descendants so the promises of the Abrahamic covenant would be remembered. God put the rainbow in the sky. That's his thing. He did that all for us. Circumcision he gave to men, to the Jews, to perpetuate themselves forever. And there's a very strict command in Genesis 17 to keep it going. To remember so they would never lose sight. They had a responsibility to maintain a memory of the promise by doing this act, this sign. A sign and a seal. Now the Lord's Supper is a powerful reminder as well of what Christ did paying the price of our sins. First Corinthians 11.26 Paul says, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, what? you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there again, it's a sign, a proclamation of his death for sin. What is the seal of our salvation in the New Testament? What's the seal in the New Testament? It's the presence of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 113, you can look that up yourself. But His presence in our lives is the seal that salvation is real and that we possess it. So the big question is, what place do signs or ceremonies have in obtaining saving righteousness from God? What place do they have? None. They have a place in the Christian life. They had a place in the pre-Christian Old Testament life, but in terms of bringing the saving righteousness of God to us, they have no relationship to that at all. That's what he's arguing. Signs are important, but saving righteousness is a gift of grace received by faith. Never compromise that in your mind or in any way. Let's go back to our text again, Romans chapter 4 verse 11 he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them. For the promise to Abraham, I'm sorry, I skipped a line, verse 12, and the father of circumcision to those who are who are not only all of the circumcision, but also to those who follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So, because it's by faith that goes to the circumcised and the uncircumcised, because they, both groups can have faith, then verse 13, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, it was before that, but through the righteousness of faith. All of it is born out of faith. That's what he's saying. Verse 13, Paul is talking about the promises in the Abrahamic covenant. The land promises are for the Jews, but there's, the covenant is expanded universally after that, and God tells him in Genesis 12, 3, In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And then in chapter 18, it talks about in his seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And Paul says that was Christ, his seed. The universal blessing which comes through his descendant, Jesus Christ, is not tied to a ceremony. And it's not tied to keeping rules. And it's not tied to the law. It's before all of that. It's tied to righteousness that comes by faith. So Paul says in 4.12, we are to follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Even Abraham, the first Jew, had this before circumcision. Now, many, many people, religious people, pastors, priests, theologians, whatever will say, well, let's not make such a sharp distinction. Both faith and law or ceremonies or whatever are needed. It's God's righteousness and our righteousness or God's righteousness and the ceremony or God's righteousness and baptism or God's righteousness and the sacrament. And No, that is not right. It's apart from law, apart from ceremony, apart from works. Verse 14, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. In terms of saving righteousness, which everybody has to have to get to heaven, how a man becomes right with God, it can't be both. That's what he's saying. Law nullifies, gets rid of, eliminates, destroys faith. You can't have both. It's impossible. Once you accept the premise of earning your salvation, you have cast aside salvation as a work of God's grace, robbed Him of His glory, taken away the work of Christ, and arrogated all of that for yourself. And that's not only blasphemous, it's fruitless. That's why in verse 15 he says, the law brings about wrath. The law brings about wrath. The law only condemns sinners doesn't help you get saved then he explains the law brings about wrath verse 15 but where there is no law neither is there violation that's a really interesting sentence you can't break a law that doesn't exist right but if you're going to put yourself under the law as a means to be saved by god you've got all these laws you are 100 percent accountable to and if you break them you're doomed But if you go the other way, the other path, where God's righteousness is put to your account and is totally apart from law, has nothing to do with keeping laws, then you're not under the law. It's as though there is no law. It really is. It's as though there is no law. And there's no violation of law in that sense. Because Christ satisfied the law, God is saving us on the basis of gift. He's saving us on the basis of grace, of promise, of inheritance, and not law-keeping. Christ satisfied the law, so in no real sense, the believer, I mean, in a real sense, the believer is outside this whole system of divine law. He's just outside of it. It's almost like a different thing. We'll talk about that more later, in later chapters, because Paul's going to really delve into that. But for now, just get this point. Law-keeping ceremonies as a means of saving righteousness overthrow grace and faith and God's righteousness and promises. Verse 16 and 17 sort of speak for themselves. For this reason, he says, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations I have made you, in the sight of him who believed whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Verse 16 has three important words, faith and grace and promise, and they're all related, and all of them are apart from law, and they're all necessary for our salvation. Faith, grace, and promise. I read a really depressing book this week, an excellent book, um, but really depressing. It's called Evangelicalism, Divided by Ian Murray. It's got to be the most important church history book written in the last five or ten years. has to be. If you're into theology, absolutely you should read this book, Evangelicalism Divided. It's a history of evangelical Christianity in England and America from 1950 to the year 2000. And it's a horror. I mean, it's a horror story to read it if you're talking about doctrine. Because Murray chronicles how in the name of becoming respectable and in the name of unity and in the name of... Um, ecumenicalism and peace, many, many important men who at one time in their life stood up boldly for the doctrines of grace and faith and promise, compromised. And if I just started saying the names, many of you would know the names I would say. And uh, it's tragic, and it explains so much about why modern Christianity is the way it is, so full of errors, so led by psychology and emotion and entertainment, and with so little theological basis. It's so clear once you see what happened why it came about that way. And it's because theologians compromised the gospel. And so that just really isn't that important. What, what Paul is saying is all important. Big names. Men who believed in the authority of Scripture and the great Reformation doctrines of grace alone and faith alone and Scripture alone joined together with those who denied those doctrines, denied them altogether, in order to do other kinds of things. And thinking that these men who upheld these great doctrines would influence these other men for the truth, exactly the opposite happened. And these great men gave up the truth in order to be buddies with these other guys. They compromise their convictions. Never let that happen. We should have an attitude, I will be the last Christian in the world who holds to the doctrine of grace alone and faith alone. And that that's how we're justified. If the whole world says something different, I'll still say that that's true. And I will tell anybody that will hear, ceremonies and rituals do not save. And it was incredible how in the Church of England, the Anglican Church, these whole vast group of scholarly, knowledgeable, evangelical, Bible-believing men said, okay, if you think you get justified by baptism, we'll just go with that. We'll let you believe that and say we're brothers and everything's okay. You baptize a baby and he's saved. When they had fought against that their whole lives, and they just decided, well, you know, for the sake of peace, we'll just say that's not important anymore. Well, we know what the Bible says, but you know the Bible, that's got to be interpreted a little differently too. now. That's... It's not all true, just partly true. and They just fell into that whole thing. The reality is God saves by grace and faith and promise. Well, we'll finish our discussion of Abraham's faith next week. Whose righteousness saves you? Yours or God's? Right. Let's sing that last hymn. Number uh, 49.